I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. All right, so this is a special deal for us. We're doing the second part of a two-part episode talking about uh, that we've called On Whiteness with uh, Jess Rao and Timothy Yu. We're going to get right to the second part of that interview, but I wanted to know, Sugi, if you had anything from listening to the first part of our interview, which aired last Thursday, if you had anything you wanted to add or that stirred up any thoughts in your mind. Well, you know, as I was traveling around this week um, and reading the news, I did notice the ways that um, blatant racism is becoming more and more acceptable, including from um, some of our elected officials or people wanting to become elected officials. This is starting to be the kind of thing that people vote on. And um, I did see a story about um, a candidate for local office in a small town in Michigan who said that she wanted her town to remain as white as possible. And, you know, it's it's curious to be, you know, I'm a person of color in the Midwest, and this is always very much on my mind. You know, I exist. People think about uh, the Midwest as it, it being a very homogenous place. And people of color have and indigenous folks have been here for a long time. Um, and I'd like to see... Um, the ways that whiteness and the Midwest are conflated, I'd like to see that complicated a little bit. So that's been on my mind for sure. How about you? Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly agree with that because I think that the story of like a city like Kansas City can't be told simply through white, you know, consciousness, you know, because there are so many different kinds of people that live here. Um, But that story about the white town brought me up to this idea that we talked a lot about the use of racial covenants as pertains to my novel, The King of Kings County, which was about those. And you guys can go back to the first part of this to hear that discussion. But one thing I forgot to say is that in Kansas City in the late 1800s, the city was really integrated. 
And there's been uh, Kevin Fox Gotham writes about this in, in his book, Race, Real Estate and Uneven Development. Like um, the average black resident in Kansas City lived in a ward that was only 13 percent black. Right. And so this idea that whiteness is a, is, a, is a way of establishing an identity for a neighborhood started with those racial covenants and the Nichols Company. And it was a way of selling those houses as opposed to the integrated space in the older city. So it was like an invention of a kind of whiteness that was used in a capitalist way to advance this agenda of this particular company. Because like, hey, what do we have to sell? All right, well, we'll sell that our neighborhood is more white than everyone else's, you know. And they would advertise that way, you know, and say things like, don't you think that you're, where, wouldn't you like to live in the country club district where your children will get the benefit of an exclusive environment and the most desirable associations? You know, that kind of coded but quite clear language was a way mm-hmm. of sort of defining Whiteness is being associated with high property values, which was a totally successful ad campaign and persisted all the way through the 20th century. And what it meant was that whites in the city, if they bought into these homes that were that were protected by racial covenants, saw their property values go up, whereas non-white residents and, and particularly black residents on the east side had no no gain from property values. So it's a it's a, it's a sort of way of using of conflate of race and capitalism mixing that that I think was powerful and worth remembering. Yeah, that's interesting. I was, um, over the weekend, I was in, um, a historically majority black city and it was such a, um, such a joy to like, you know, to go to black owned businesses, um, you know, with black staff, um, to, and it was just sort of really powerful for me in that Minneapolis is an extremely segregated city and thinking about how that happened, you know, racial covenants were in play here as well. Um, and I think, you know, used in, used in many places. And so just thinking about the ways that that history has been, um, erased or, um, you know, blurred so that, you know, you, I, I don't know how much I I had been thinking about it. Um, last week we also talked a little bit about, uh, the ways in which Toni Morrison's passing was connected to my thinking about the idea for this episode. And I did want to also mention that, um, you know, her most recent book is The Source of Self-Regard, um, and that's available from Penguin Random House now. And I also picked up an old paperback. I was in a used bookstore in the the city where I was, and I picked up a copy of Song of Solomon, which was um, like a very old copy of Song of Solomon. And I was, it was really... That's um, a good book. really... Yeah. And it was just, I mean, of course I've read it before. Um, but it was cool to find, um, that still on the shelves and thinking about, uh, her writing saying, you know, I'm writing for black people. And then I was thinking about, you know, what are famous depictions of you're talking about whiteness as code. I was reminded of course, of, I'm sure so many of our listeners have already read this book, but Claudia Rankin's citizen in which there is a very distinct depiction of whiteness as a kind of code, Right. Like uh, certainly blatant racism, but also more subtle um, daily, uh, the daily living of living with racism. Um, I just think it's important to remember. I think it's nice to not not nice, but it is important to remember that, you know, that that idea that that certain associations with whiteness didn't always exist and can be broken, I think. You know, and I think it's important to try to break that association of whiteness with wealth or with safe neighborhoods or whatever, right? And I think that there are there are cities like Atlanta um, and even Kansas City now, which is becoming more diverse, where diversity is a is a thing that makes it better. You know, that makes 
businesses want to be there, that makes people want to live there. Um, it is possible to sort of consciously start to try to work against that myth because that myth was consciously created in the first place. I do think it's also important to work against that myth in a way that um, disrupts like the notion of respectability politics, not to necessarily say um, that, you know, of course, to like to kind of get in the way of model minority myths that are set up. Um, and last week, I think we also like I in particular was kind of jonesing to talk about um, how white writers can be critical of their communities and what kinds of audiences they might find that way. And I wanted to mention a couple of books that are coming out, some by white writers and some by writers of color. Um, you know, Lacey Johnson, who we've had on the show, wrote a terrific book, uh, essay collection called The Reckonings, in which she does write about whiteness. Um, my friend Janine Capucce has a book coming out called My Time Among, Among the Whites. Um, Janine has been writing for the New York Times and often writes about race and class and gender in really powerful ways. So I'm looking forward to that book. And I think it has <laughs> kind of a blisteringly good title. Um, Akiba Solomon and Kenya Rankin's How We Fight White Supremacy, A Field Guide to Black Resistance, which I'm also very interested in reading. Um, so also, I think we're seeing, it's interesting to see how like this discussion about race is making its way into titles so that these titles are, um, they're very direct and like in some cases, like how-to manuals. Um, well, we have so, our, we, we have our, I have, I'm not going to list my books because we do a little bit of this listing of books like the ones you're talking about later in this conversation with Jess and Timothy, you want to, should we send us, send ourselves on to that? Yes. Um, I do want to point out right before we go that, um, we ha did do an episode about racism and diversity in publishing. So we will also point you back to that episode in which we talk a little bit about Ralph Ellison among others. Um, but I think with that closing note, we can, we can send you on to the second half of Tim and Jess. And so just to orient you, the first voice you'll hear is from Jess Rao. And the essay that we're talking about, the Hickok essay, is an essay by Bob Hickok called The Promise of American Poetry from the Utney Reader. It was published this summer. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. In, in 2016, in the fall of 2016, I published these two essays right around the time of Trump's election. The first one is called What Are White Writers For? And it's a response to the Lionel, the Lionel Shriver controversy. And right. the second one is called A Safe Space for Racism. And what I'm talking about in both those, uh, both those essays is this idea that Whitney was talking about a, a, a second ago about the, a very widespread idea in uh, white American communities that racial justice and um, signs of racial progress are a zero-sum game and that any um, success of non-white people equals uh, a loss for white people. There was a really fascinating uh, psychological study done, I think, in 2011 that showed just how many white Americans view civil rights through that lens of a zero-sum mm -hmm. game. And that's exactly mm -hmm. the kind of thing Bob Hickok is talking about in slightly more elevated metaphorical language. But instead, and, and I, I think that like one of the reasons that that is people are always viewing this sort of thing as a zero sum game is also that we're always viewing everything through the lens of freaking capitalism. Absolutely. You know? right. And like, <laughs> which is its which is its new official. That's where like, the career stuff comes in, you know. Right, right, right. It's a lens of it's a lens of scarcity. It's a view. It's a view fundamentally shaped by uh, the politics of scarcity. And, you know, of course, that very much, um, you know, applies to the contemporary academy, this perception that there's always fewer jobs and there's this very 
um, naked sort of brutal competition for the few tenure track jobs. So if you look at the creative writing jobs wiki, um, you'll often see just about every year, you'll see some threads of anonymous commenters saying, oh, people of color are getting all the jobs. That's that's very common. Um, yeah. And, and for uh, our listeners who might better. not know what that what that website is, um, <laughs> you're lucky. <laughs> just 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 Google yeah. creative writing jobs wiki and, and you're in for some uh, boring and but also sometimes shockingly unpleasant uh, reading. I would just like to look at this. I get it from the from the jobs point of view and the career point of view, but also what I'm interested in is the content part. And, and instead of viewing uh, things as in the way that Hickok does in his essay, I mean, I'm sitting in the neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, you know. So I've been living basically in the same part of this city for 50 years, and the city that I live in now in this neighborhood was, I mean, I live just a little three or four blocks west of here. So race. And racism in Kansas City is sort of micro-targeted in terms of blocks, right, which I've written a lot about. But my neighborhood is interracial. The block that I live on has multiple ethnicities living on it. Uh, My school now has a tremendous number of international students. So you hear all kinds of languages walking around, none of which was true when I was a a kid. Um, And this makes this neighborhood much more interesting you know, a, a, a place that has more opportunities for fiction than it ever did before for whatever, whoever the writer is. And there are going to be more writers from Kansas City and they're going to come from multiple ethnicities. And that's all a good thing. You know, there are connections here that you can build as a white writer rather than viewing it as a negative. And, and I just and also in any city is going to be a polyphonic city, you know, and and any whoever you are, whatever your background is, whatever you're where, whether you grew up poor, whether you grew up wealthy whatever your race was, you're a voice in that city. And your you know, job as a writer is to find out how that voice plays into the city and what other voices it relates to. Uh, I just don't understand, I don't understand that sort of zero-sum game of thinking about content. Right. You know, this, it's, yeah, please, Tim. So it's, 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 you know, Wade, it's really interesting that you bring that up because one thing that I say in my response to Hickok's essay is that, so he does this interesting thing where he says, there's this paragraph where he says early in the essay, the hottest book of the, of the past few years is by a black woman. The hottest book of the moment is by a gay man born in Vietnam. But he doesn't name either of the books until like the second to last paragraph of the essay. Right. And I found that so interesting because what he sees, what he writes about is this phenomenon, this abstract phenomenon of writers of color rising, right? But you he could also write say the hottest books. book you could also say the hottest book is by an American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, but he also but he also but he, he doesn't say anything about the books. Yeah. He doesn't actually as read them. Right. And so what's, you know, what's really interesting about that, um, you know, maybe to some degree, the first step, if, you know, a a white, the the white writer who doesn't know how to engage this is like, just read these other writers, just engage with them in any way, in some way other than to just remark on their rise and that they're, you know, like coming to take your jobs. That's Um, right. Well, well, the, the essay would have been so much different if he had talked about Claudia Rankin, if he had talked about Ocean Vuong as peers, as fellow writers, right? I mean, the simplest possible kind of recognition of a writer of color who is a a colleague, a peer. I mean, I feel like that would have been such a 
you know, that would have gotten the conversation to a much more productive point than the essay ultimately gets to. And just to kind of bring these together, I think, you know, Witt is talking and was talking a little bit about the way that, um, you know, so much American fiction about cities, you know, you have the opportunity to write about people who are different than you, the opportunity and challenge of writing from points of view, perhaps differently than differently uh, that are different than your own. And there's this perception that people are going to be lambasted for that and um, the ways in which. Like, I mean, Tim, what you're describing happens to writers of color all the time. Like, like to get your actual, like your book read um, and actually read on its own terms, which is the the starting place for for writers from kind of, um, you know, unmarked, quote unquote, um, identities. You know, I wrote an essay several years ago for the Asian American Writers Workshop about the different ways that the New York Times profiled Bill Chang, who's, um, you know, a Queens-raised writer of, of Taiwanese-American descent, and, and Anthony Mara, who had written a book saying, um, in Chechnya and the way that the, the books came out, you know, relatively sort of around the same time, there were profiles of both writers and the Bill Cheng profile is sort of suffused with this like pretty maddening, like astonishment that an Asian American writer could write Southern Cross the Dog, which is which is set in the Jim Crow South as though he couldn't as though he couldn't make that leap, as though the default would be to assume that 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 leap was not possible for him. And whereas Anthony Mara's book, and I think, you know, both these writers are tremendous writers. Anthony Mara's book, um, the sort of his mastery was kind of taken for granted and he was lauded and, and Cheng was mysterious or inexplicable. His talent, his, um, his ability to, to do that, to, um, to research and write from a history that was of a different community and to, to treat that with respect was like in some way, like, I mean, really orientalized. And so to sort of think about um, the ways in which criticism also has really failed um, to address uh, like the different the kind of language like we were talking about the hottest book is by a woman like what does it mean to say hottest right that's like that's like that's like when agents used to come um around and be like well you know books by south asians are really trendy right now and you know well i've been trendy since birth like that's been great for me um you know and it's just like it just hasn't worked out that well to be a trend so i mean i think that <laughs> um you know, and then there's the people who will say, you know, I, when we, Witt and I were talking about this before, you know, we were bringing up Franzen, which which you write about in your book, Jess, you know, quote, you know, quote, I've never loved black people, so I don't write about them. And and to me, that sort of the notion of um, I appreciate the sort of the, the idea of kind of hashtag no, own stories, but also I don't want people to think that my identity is unapproachable or strange, which is also like another way of orientalizing it. Um Jess, I wonder if you could read from that section of the book, actually. Read from that section of the book. Um, oh, Sugi, I'm so sorry. Uh, I don't. I don't. Um, I, I need to go get it. I don't have it in front of me. Okay. Um, I'm so. I'm sorry. I just. I had to move rooms because it was too noisy. And you're, so can you just hold on? You're hold off on the podcast, man. It's done. Sorry, <laughs> we're ending. Um, <laughs> well, maybe I could. Well, maybe while Jess gets the book, I could. Okay, I could jump in for a sec. I, I think that I'll, I'll I'll give him some cover. Um, the um, that that is is such an interesting perspective because you know back to the the you know Lionel Schreiber thing of oh like you know I I can't write from if I write from somebody else's perspective like you know I'm going to get raked over the coals or something and you know that's against my artistic freedom etc. And you're so, not necessarily. Especially well, right, if you're a white writer. Well, exactly, exactly. So the, the the flip side of that is that when a writer of color dares to venture outside what is seen as their sphere of knowledge, 
they're, you know, right. It's either treated as some kind of, it's either, you know, not read at all, or it's treated as some kind of, wow, how did he do that? How could an Asian writer possibly understand what it means to be white or to be black? How could an African-American writer possibly write a white character? I mean, you know, it's, it's seen as this, you know, this very kind of strange thing. So, you know, writers of color ex- experience that in a very powerful way. And of course, there's a you know a, a stack of books as high as the ceiling with white writers writing from African American perspectives, writing Asian characters, and, and so on. The only yeah. thing that's changed, you know, sorry Lionel Shriver, but is that when a white writer does that, people might actually evaluate how well they did it. Correct. <laughs> and not only that, but I want to bring up one other thing that I think is partly mm-hmm. part of this discussion is that. When you and this goes back to what Sugi was saying earlier about the culture of self-critique of white culture. If you write a book that is critical of white culture and you're a white writer, you might not sell as well, um, you know. And you just have to live with that. That's okay, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my my first novel, The Huntsman, was about the hyper segregation of Kansas City, uh, and was a very critical novel of the city that the city was not used to having had written. A lot of people got mad about it. People in my family got mad about it. It came out in 2001, the same year that The Corrections came out. And I knew that that book was never going to be as popular as Franzen's book for the exact reason that it dealt with subjects that made people deeply uncomfortable instead of the kind of corrections that Franzen is talking about, which are like, we use too much, uh, we have too much, you know, technology in our lives, you know, which are, are the kinds of corrections that people don't mind being given. And I just yeah. knew that was going to happen. And it's going to be part it. of my career. And I think that that goes back to that notion of self-critique, right? I think I referenced before sort of being trained by Sri Lankan activists. And I think, you know, like I am within my community, a pol- like I would probably characterize myself as a political dissident because a huge amount of my community are were pro-Tamil nationalism for a long time. Some of them still are. And, and I'm not. And um I have to engage in that debate and conversation and argument within my own community. And sometimes I've been frustrated in the ways that um, that the fact that that internal argument exists isn't particularly acknowledged. That nuance is flattened outside. But really, I'm not doing it to perform for other people. So, oh, well. And so, like, I think that is also a thing that, right, there's a kind of way that many white writers who are writing about communities of color, um, like, how do you avoid how do you make it something more than virtue signaling, right? Like, um, how do you make it something that's really substantive, um, you know, not to just have, like, the black sidekick or, you know, to, like, and I think that's actually, to, to kind of get to that, I think that's one thing that we're starting to see in, in more and more fiction, like the ways in which, like, you don't have just the one character. And so form and sort of choices about how many char- like how many characters there are, um, you know, when characters of color are talking to each other and there's no white character in the room, um, how can we get critics to not say, you know, like kind of when are you going to write about white people, which is a question that I, I used to get on the road all the time, like, you know, kind of uh, how long are you going to write about Sri Lanka? Like, why would you, why are, like, when are you going to write about us? Um, in some ways, is, is always a is always a response that one gets. So, how can the conversation be turned to like again, like what the actual material is addressing? How can people get to write on their own terms and to have those arguments and conversations in ways that aren't performative? Right. Yeah. So, should I go back and? Uh... We're just going to keep all this in, and uh, okay. and yeah, we're yeah. gonna we'll, we'll we'll you've you've live brought the book back, and you're going to read to us now. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so this is from an essay in uh, White Flights called Beautiful Shame, or What We Talk About When We Talk About White Writing. Um, I think this part of the essay is pretty self-explanatory, so I'm just going to dive right in. In highly fraught conversations about race and creative writing, there often seem to be no other kind. The most common protest against foregrounding race or underrepresentation goes like this. When institutions, English departments, anthology editors, prize committees, start selecting writers or texts on the basis of identity, they stop thinking about merit. There are at least two ways of reading this protest, the most obvious being that it's an intrinsically racist or sexist assumption that any set of writers of color or women or writers with disabilities have less merit, less inherent quality than a parallel set of white writers. In other words, if an, aw an awards panel assumes that what they have been doing in selecting writers for award X is to prioritize merit only, then the lack of writers of color receiving award X must demonstrate they have less of it. But it's important to consider another possibility also. This protest is really about a deeply rooted belief in what might be called the white autonomy of the imagination. The white autonomy of the imagination is essentially a Kantian principle taken uh, derived from the critique of judgment that assumes only certain people are capable of truly universal, disinterested aesthetic or artistic perception, those who belong to a census communis, a, co a community of taste. Drawing on the beginnings of European race science in the 18th century, Kant presented the census communis in strongly racialized terms, arguing that Africans, who clearly resembled animals, could never have the capacity for universal judgment. Generations of scholars, most recently Fred Moten in his book Stolen Life, have detailed the ways Kant's association of whiteness and universal judgment have filtered down to public concepts of taste and quality in the present. Among fiction writers, white universality or autonomy is often presented as a theatrical ambivalence about that classic and useless bit of literary advice, write what you know. There's a useful caricature of this drama in the otherwise forgettable 2002 movie, Orange County. Sean, who is a young white aspiring writer, can't wait to leave behind his brainless OC compadres and begin his artistic life at Stanford when he discovers that his school guidance counselor has bungled his application. His ne'er-do-well his ne uncle, played by Jack Black, then takes him to Palo Alto and helps him break into the admissions office to correct the mistake with predictably disastrous results. The admissions office at the end of a long screwball sequence burns to the ground. Rather than suffer any consequences, Sean returns to Orange County unscathed. His fabulously wealthy parents decide to donate a new admissions building to Stanford, which gains him admission after all, but he chooses, chooses instead to stay in Orange County and turn his superficial and pampered milieu into art, that is to write what he knows. Sean, of course, is free to make a choice, but it isn't really a choice at all. Whether he goes to Stanford this year or NYU the next, whether he decides to find himself in Kathmandu or remain on the scene in Laguna Beach, he's free to make or remake himself as he wishes. If he's able to make the leap into art through the shaming vehicle of the workshop, he will be acclaimed as an individual, unrepeatable genius. This is a pattern that has repeated itself in recent years in the reception of blockbuster debut novels by young white American men Benjamin Kunkel's Indecision, Chad Harbach's The Art of Fielding, Garth Risk Halberg's City on Fire. It's necessary for comparison to consider how differently this ideological formation works with writers of color, who are almost always encouraged, encouraged or challenged to believe in an essentialist idea of collective representation, whether they go on to embody it or not. 
African-American, Latinx, Asian-American, and Caribbean-American writers all inherit decades of literary debate about the politics of self-representation that white writers almost never see. To be a black writer in America in 2019 is to position oneself or be positioned in a debate about blackness and Americanness that extends back to W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Sterling Brown, the black arts movement, and into the present in debates about Afro-pessimism and Afrofuturism that invoke the existential terms set down more than a century ago. Yet it's not enough to say, as has been said many times before, that writers of color carry a burden of self-representation white writers do not. Normativity is not weightlessness. Repressed identity, repressed shame is itself a kind of burden reflected in prose that bears the traces of extreme pressure and self-denial. Normativity is itself a kind of facelessness. What the construction of the white autonomy of the imagination misses is that autonomy, which often feels like vacancy, is a state of oppression. Thanks, Jess. So, Timothy, you're a full-time critic and literary scholar, as opposed to Jess, who says that fiction is his, quote, first language. And the majority of critics are white. And as another recent piece in The New York Times pointed out, that's a problem. And I think, you know, one of the great pleasures of your piece is sort of seeing the very, un, you know, having a, a white writer read closely by a critic of color um, who brings that knowledge and history to bear on, on the arguments that Hickok presents. To expand on my point about the way that Anthony Mara and Bill Chang were um, profiled, I'm curious about what you think about the way that criticism is affected um, by by those demographics, or the way that books about race are reviewed and curated generally. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And in fact, it's also a question that was one of the central questions that was being talked about at the Asian American Literature Festival, not necessarily in the on the stage, but actually in the conversations I was having with other poets, other editors, um, other scholars. They they were saying things like, well, you know, when Asian American writers publish books, who's reviewing them? You know, who's getting to talk about them? Uh, you know, are there Asian American critics out there who can do the kind of work of looking at these books, explaining what's going on in them, giving some kind of context to them, but also being able to engage some of this discourse around race, around whiteness that are activated by essays like Hickok's. So I think that... <clears throat> I think that it's still very much the case that certainly for Asian American writers, and I, I think that the situation is is more complex for African American writers. I think I think that one thing you often hear among Asian American writers is thinking about, you know, oh, there are these African American writers out there who, even if there's only a few of them, who have that kind of cultural position where they can mark out cultural space, they can function as cultural critics, and there aren't really Asian American critics out there who are able to do that in the same way. I do think that that inflects all of the conversations that we've had, because sure, there's what's going on in the academy, but there isn't in a lot of cases that kind of middle ground of critics who can go out there and make the case to kind of a more general reading public of what's going on in literature, how should we think, be thinking about race? Um, and as you say, to actually read what white writers are saying from the perspective of a writer of color. So one thing that has, I think, made a big difference is social media. Uh, you know, when uh, something like this happens, a lot of the time, the first way in which you hear about Asian American responses to it is because Asian Americans start dragging it on Twitter. So I think that's one way in which Asian American writers at least have been trying to 
elbow their way into the conversation. But I think that still at this level of who are the critics who get to write about these kinds of things, I, I agree that it's still primarily white gatekeepers who are getting to do that. Most of the books I've been asked to review have been connected to South Asia in some way. Um, and sometimes an edit, you know, we don't even talk about sort of what are the demographics of editors. And so sometimes there can be things like perceived expertise um, or a misunderstanding of what a book is about. Um, I can think of at least one occasion on which I was asked to review a book and, um, you know, thought it was a great book. And then later sort of realized that I had possibly been asked to review that book because of what the editor thought my expertise was, which was actually quite different. Um, And the the book was by a writer of color. It seems to me, um, and I would love for someone to confirm or deny this, that debut writers of color tend to be reviewed by other writers of color with one or two books out. To be reviewed by a staff critic is a mark of a certain kind of hierarchy. Um, Staff critics seem to me more than freelance critics to be white. Um, you know, even if you look at reportage that um, women are likely to write about things like reproductive rights um, and that all of this, it's great. It, it is great to bring that history uh, to bear on criticism. I also wonder if we could maybe be doing a better job of challenging the way that white people read, um, because shouldn't that also they're missing stuff? Um, well, I, right? yeah, like, I if, mean, the other side of this, from my perspective, Sugi, and, and, and I love it that you bring up this. As a white person. Yeah. <laughs> speaking as a white person. I mean, speaking as a white person who's had books reviewed, right, um, is that I've written three novels. All of them have dealt with race in some way or another, including my war novel, The Good Lieutenant, which has Iraqi characters in it. And I have been reviewed by a writer of color exactly one time. You know, exactly. and I do, I would prefer for that not to be the case because I feel like white critics who particularly like who read the King of Kings County, my, that 2005 book we've been talking about, not one of them. I was happy for the reviews. The reviews were all good. OK, but not one of them discussed what the book was about. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is an experience I've had too. OK, I was going to ask you if that happened for, with you, Jess, for, for your face and mine. I mean, it, I, I think with your face in mind and also with White Flights, um, I've had reviewers who are people of color and reviewers who are white, um, and I'm thankful for all the reviews um, for sure. But they're definitely in both cases, uh, it's it's interesting to see what people focus on and what they do not focus on uh, in the reviews. And sometimes you do feel, sometimes I have felt like... Um, this this reviewer um, was trying to essentially avoid what the book was really about. Um, not I, I would say not that often, but it it definitely has happened. And I you know I would also say that in what one of the things that's been most notable for me is you know I've now been out on the road twice with uh, books about race, very explicitly books about race. And something that comes up a lot in conversations with other white writers at literary festivals or at AWP, the Associated Writing Program Convention, or in other places like that, is this constant refrain of, you're so brave, and I wish I had that kind of courage, and um, you know, I would never be able to do that, and also better you than me. Speaking um, of conversations that white writers have amongst themselves, like that's what you guys about. are doing. That <laughs> happens all the time to me. I, I, I mean, that, that, I always, that all, all the time. Um, 
and it's uh, it's but, very painful. It's 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 very painful because it speaks to the um, the the power of a certain received wisdom, which is I, I mean this is something we've talked about before. Um, I think Tim brought up this the the question of like artistic paralysis, um, and I think that you know there there is a really profound artistic paralysis among white American writers when that, it comes to race. That includes critics because the thing that I noticed about exactly. about the reviews for the King of Kings County say, which I went back and looked at, I was only compared to white writers. So Cheever, Updike, Ann Beatty, Ann Tyler, you know, right. all those were the comparisons. But I was and saying like this is a book like that, but my book was attempting to deconstruct what those writers did. I did not yeah. want to be like them. You know, like I didn't and want when, to be in that group. Yeah, we were talking about in when we were talking about this episode, I was saying to it that, um, you know, I mean, Wit and I trained with some of the same teachers and we've read a lot of the same things and we're interested in a lot of the same subjects, which I think is one of the reasons we're hosting a podcast together. And yet I can't imagine a review saying comparing the two of us. Um, you know, why how can't, often, why can't that happen? Why can't white right, writers be right. thought of in terms of, uh, of writers of colors work? I, and that there's this in segregation yeah. in, in comparison that happens. Yeah. I, I, I published an essay, uh, about that very subject when your face and mine came out five years ago, it's called native sons. It's in Guernica and it's about my, um, struggle with this, with this question and my identification with uh, James Baldwin primarily, and how difficult and tricky it is for white writers to name non-white writers as major influences. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a largely um, unexplored subject. I mean, one thing that I try to uh, persuade people to do all the time is to look at, um, to look at different writers in parallel. So, for example, um, I think it was Poets and Writers asked me to suggest a bunch of uh, further reading books about, about white flight. And two of the books I suggested are uh, Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides and The Turner House by Angela Flournoy, because those books are parallel stories in many ways about Detroit in the 20th century from a Greek-American point of view, which is an assimilating into whiteness point of view, and from an African-American point of view. And the stark difference between them is something that is uh, so revelatory. And yet that kind of thing doesn't happen. It happens very infrequently. I was one of Frank Conroy's students, and, and he would talk about meaning, sense, and clarity. And I appreciate those pillars, and I teach from them, too. But it does also suggest this notion that in reading, one has to be, one should be comfortable and have perfect understanding. And so much of what I have gained as a reader has been from a position of being uncomfortable and not understanding and being forced to guess and being wrong and then correcting myself. And, and that has been my mode of reading. And I don't know... Like, I think it's actually like a really interesting artistic problem to try to figure out, like, how would I teach that kind of reading, like, and like being okay with being uncomfortable to um, my readers, if that was who my readers were, and if I were in that community. And I mean, I think in some ways, I have parallel problems with um, the way that some Sri Lankan politics play out. But it's, it, I mean, it's not the same thing, because it's a different tradition. So if you've got this set of people who think that everything should be clear and easy for them and that fiction, psychological fiction is the mode of, of working and, and that everything is intensely individual um, and separated from history in this way. How does, how can the art move to create a different tradition or, or evolve a tradition of reading? 
Right. I, I mean, just to you know, make another Iowa connection. Uh, Marilyn Robinson is a major presence in in my book um, because she's a white writer who, in her later novels, has uh, dealt with race um, openly, but also I would say in a way that's open, but yet also very profoundly closed because she's writing about. Iowa in the middle of the 20th century, and she's writing about the history of John Brown in Iowa, you know, almost a century before. And these descendants, these white descendants of um, anti-slavery campaigners who fought with John Brown. But what she's also writing about, and what she doesn't name directly, or names only in, in a very kind of marginal way, is the fact that Iowa in the mid-20th century was a profoundly and violently segregated place. And um, what she, the, her underlying ethos, her Calvinist ethos, which she you know, is very, very explicit about and has written about in great detail, has to do with you know, a version of extreme American individualism and the separateness of the individual. And what I write about in her novels is that essentially her belief in the separateness of individuals literally creates space, uh, a kind of empty space that um, prevents her from writing about racism explicitly, that essentially prevents her from grappling with it accurately and explicitly. Yeah, Sugi, I, I, to follow up on Jess's question, in terms of trying to talk to people about how to think collectively, I, I mean, I don't, it's not something that I ever thought of explicitly until you brought it up. So I can't really say that I've like got a practice for that. I mean, I think you, you try to write the books and go out on the road and explain them um, to the best of your ability, you know. Uh, but I do, I do want to mention that I think Jess's book does a great job of critiquing uh, writers who have avoided this subject. But there are white writers who have done a good job. Oh, absolutely. And, and, I, and I, there are some that I would mention. And, and I, you know, Russell Banks is somebody that I thought in his work, at least maybe not perfectly, but always was alive to that issue. Um, if you look at uh, Continental Drift and novels like that. And you mentioned in your book Coetzea and Nadine Gordimer. Um, there are some other less well-known writers who are my contemporaries who, who write in this area, uh, like Joanna Luloff or Tom Piazza, Josh Barkin. Zach Lazar, Rilla Askew, who's a mid Midwesterner. So I would just say that there are people out there who are doing this. And, and sometimes I think, given that, you know, I mean, Russell never won a major prize. And, and some of the people that I've just listed there, I think listeners might not know, which is unfortunate because I think they're good writers. Sometimes you pay a price for that in your career. I, w I mean, Whitney's exactly right. And there are, you know, so many writers uh, to point to. I would, you know, one, one, Example that really stands out for me is Alan Gerganis's uh, collection of short stories called White People that came out in the 1990s. I love that so much. <laughs> it's it's just a absolutely extraordinary book. It's extremely funny and extremely painful, and the level of um, self consciousness about mid century Southern whiteness in that book is is really extraordinary. And I think it it perhaps got um, left behind. I mean, you know, I, I think Gorganis was as explicit as he could be by calling the book "White People." Um, <laughs> really? You know, I mean, he couldn't he couldn't possibly make it any plainer. But yet, the fact that the fact that he was viewed as a humorist, a little bit sort of in the vein of Garrison Keillor, 
cause still causes a lot of people to miss how incisive he is and how distinctive you know how distinctive his writing is yeah he's amazing it's i've had a hilarious conversation with a, a friend a couple years ago and she said, you know, I have this dream of writing a collection of, and this was a person of color, I have, I have a dream of writing a collection of stories called White People. And I was like, I gotta tell you, <laughs> someone has beaten you to this and you should yes. really read it. Uh, I would also, so, the one last thing that I would mention is that I also, when reading to think about how to write my work, read a lot of writers of color uh, who write, either they're only writing about uh, characters who are uh, of color, but also who write about multi you know, multi-voiced works from different racial points of view. Marlon James is good at that. Zadie Smith was somebody who I read for that. Uh, Anthony Grooms, who's I... a who's a good writer, uh, uh, who's based in Georgia, does that. Fong Wen, who's a teaches at the University of Missouri, who's a friend of mine, does that. Susan Choi does that. There's a lot of writers that I learned of color who I learned a lot from in terms of writing cross racial barriers. I would just add people like Monique Trong. Um, Reginald McKnight, Martha Southgate, yeah, Reginald McKnight, John Edgar Wideman. Um, yeah, Reginald McKnight also he published a book of short stories called White Boys. Uh, he blurred really my first book. I'm super was super grateful to him. A super great guy, really terrific. Yeah, writer. He's a, a terrific writer who I hope is he, he hasn't published in a long time, but I hope he's getting back on track and will come out with new work soon. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to observe this, but you know, writers of color have to have this skill, right? Writers of color have to be able to think about how to occupy whiteness because they confront it on a daily basis. Right. right? And they have to think about, they cannot not think about their own subject position vis-a-vis whiteness. It's just not possible as a person of color in the United States. And so, you know, if you want to say that, you know, maybe to, to, you know, go back to Bob Hickok, if you want to say that at some level that gives writers of color almost an advantage in the sense that they have to have that ability of, of empathy to under, to be able to inhabit, you know, this, this other subject position. And that we are at a moment where white writers can look at that and learn from that in really important ways. The, the other thing I wanted to say, though, was that the, you know, going back to the question about, you know, just people saying to you, you're, you know, so you're really brave or I couldn't have done this. Um, I'm going to be attacked if I do this. Is that, you know, I think about Asian American writers and like Asian American writers like shred each other all the time. Yes, we do. You know, maybe we don't do it openly, but, you know, we'll be like, oh, my gosh, you know, that book, uh, you know, can you believe, et cetera. You know, we're, we're, we're doing that all the time. We're always criticizing other Asian American writers. We're always critiquing what other Asian American writers have done. And so, you know, that that is. Um, that is something that people, I think, have to get used to. The idea that you know, white writers, if they venture into this into this uh, this realm, which they should, they they are going to be critiqued, and you know, that's okay. It's it's funny thinking back to the reviewing conversation. You know, I, I a couple of reviews of my. Uh, book of poetry, 100 Chinese Silences, are like, oh, you know, th- this book is so angry, like this book. Is so I'm like, really? I thought it was, you know, I thought it was funny. But, you know, having... <laughs> can I can I just say, it's it's one of the funniest books of poetry I think I've ever read. 
<laughs> but the 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 sense that like it can only be grasped by some some readers in that frame of like oh it's you know it's it, this angry man of color I'm like oh, you know which to me is sort of you know knowing myself very comical but that's you know that's okay like that's that's part of how my work is going to be read and I I understand and accept that. And I think that, again, you know, from the perspective, thinking about the perspective of a white writer who's afraid to go into these kinds of spaces, it's like, okay, well, you know, be prepared that there's, it's going to be uncomfortable. And I say that to my students all the time. This is from the perspective of somebody who teaches classes in American literature, but also classes in ethnic studies to primarily white students who are scared to talk about race. And it's like, okay, you know, I know you're scared. I know that you don't want to say the wrong thing, et cetera. It's like, it's okay. You know, you're here to be uncomfortable and we have to say those things. And hopefully by the end of the semester, they've gotten to the point where they can say, all right, even if these conversations are extremely uncomfortable, I at least feel like I can participate in them in a way that I couldn't before. And so that, that I think is a step that a lot of, you know, not just writers, but, you know, <laughs> people need to be able to take to step into that space. So, Tim, you mentioned the way that Asian American writers and and I feel like the how fraught the term Asian American is is like a whole nother episode. But you mentioned the way that Asian American writers like Beth Wynn, who's been on the show, responded to Trillin's essay. And that's an affirmation of who's in the room today, going going back to the um, Hickox dismay. And Jess, in your book, you critique the way that white Americans seem to act, quote, as if interracial or interrelated life can be an object for our disinterested contemplation rather than something Americans all participate in. So as we've discussed quite a bit on this podcast, we are living in an insane hellscape, which is not a new hellscape. When it comes to the way far too many white Americans and our president think, act, and talk about their fellow Americans of color, anyone deemed not white, um, and yet if everybody is at the same time participating in interracial life in one way or another, what does that mean for writers, white writers? Yes, but I mean, really just all of us. Like, What are the opportunities presented by that that, we're, that we could be taking advantage of? Well, you know, one thing that's really interesting to me is that Bob Hickok's essay, which sparked this, you know, this whole response from me, the the seed of it really is in there. And one thing I say at the end of my response is that, you know, what if Hickok could move from seeing this as a kind of death to seeing this as a rebirth, a new set of opportunities for him to engage with a new set of writers and to learn something from them. And that he and I think many other, you know, uh, white Americans have kind of made the first step of recognizing that change has happened and it's irreversible and it's probably even a good thing, right? I mean, Hickok at least has gotten there. And the challenge, and I think this is the challenge that all, you know, writers are facing right now, it's like, what is that next step, right? Okay, we've recognized that change has occurred and, um, Maybe we even recognize that it's a good thing. If you don't think it's a good thing, well, then that's a that's another set of conversations. But um, if you recognize that it's a good thing, then you have the opportunity to step into that space and to. Um, but I think in some cases, especially with in the case of Hickok, it may mean saying, "Okay, like let's take a cue from what." writers of color are doing, just like, you know, Hickok says in his essay, like he talks a lot about admiring Martin Luther King and learning so much from King in the way that I think a lot of white liberals do. It's like, okay, but what would it mean to much more radically say, well, I'm really going to kind of follow the leadership of people of color in politics, in writing, and learn from them 
rather than be so centered in, you know, kind of, you know, what, how am, you know, what is my place? Like what, what happens now that I've lost my centrality? It's like, okay, um, step, you know, take a step back and, and learn from the writers that you are saying you admire. So I, I think there's an, there is a huge opportunity there because the landscape has changed and those voices are out there. It's just a question of how we're going to listen to them. Yeah, I would say in addition to that, um, you know, I, I mean, my, my book, White Flights, really comes out of a belief that um, white Americans and American people of color are bound together by so many recognized and unrecognized bonds of love, admiration, desire, uh, confusion, uh, tension, misunderstanding, in some ways, accurate understanding of people who are not like you or sometimes accurate perceptions. Um, and that it's profoundly important to remember how um, interrelated we all are and how much American culture is a what Albert Murray says in, uh, in his book, The Omni-Americans, in, in the early 1970s, he says, um, America is a mongrel culture. And that's a good thing. That's, you know, that is just the way that it is. And, you know, I mean, um, I don't agree with all of the conclusions Albert Murray makes as a response to that observation, but I think the observation is is hugely important. And if you want to see an example of that, just look at what's the big hit of the summer, of the summer. It's Old Town Road, which is a, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a trap song that is also a country western song. Um, it's, it's, uh, written, if I'm not incorrect, it was written and performed by little Nas X, who's a black gay man. And his partner is, um, uh, what's his name is, um, uh, the achy breaky heart guy, Billy Ray Cyrus, Miley Cyrus's father. Um, it's, you know, that, that song is such a classic and beautiful example of the, um, the, intrinsically hybrid nature of American culture. There's this really deep longing for um, reconciliation and reparation and connectedness um, that is, you know, that is so complicated, but I think it's still, you know, it's, it's still, it's always there. You know, it can be dormant, it can be alive, it's always there. I would just I think about that kind of connection and community just in terms of Kansas City because that's been the the place that I write about the most and you know um there is that that weirdness about Kansas City is that it feels to me like it's a much more diverse and more connected city than it was when I was a child in part because these stories are starting to come out and people understanding them um and and so that's it's weird to have that happening in the middle of this administration which is so divisive and so negative but those kinds of connections are really important. Like we just elected our third uh, black mayor, Quentin Lucas, who is a, I remember, and he once spoke to me about this, we're friends. And he was in a high school class that I went to speak to a, about The Huntsman, my first novel, and talking about segregation in, in Kansas City. Um, and now he's the mayor of the city. Um, those, That's amazing. It's fantastic. You know, he's going to be a great mayor. And those kinds of things, those are the stories that I want to hold on to and remember as things that are uh, 
uh, an example of the way forward in America. And I think that fiction um, and poetry and just narrative in general and, I mean, essays are uniquely positioned to eliminate. I mean, that stuff is, I mean, it's not, it's always been in our history. And so, I don't know, I think of, um, you know, my father telling me about going to see Duke Ellington in Sri Lanka and my my kind of amazement, Duke Ellington was in Sri Lanka? Of course Duke Ellington was in Sri Lanka. Um and of course, my father went to see him. And, you know, like the, the way that, um, you know, the the Sri Lankan activists who talk to me about um, the importance of kind of self-critique are also people who listened to Paul Robeson when they were kids in northern Sri Lanka um, were playing those records, you know, that um, the like at the University of Minnesota, where I teach that, um, you know, the native peoples whose whose land this was, that we are constantly I think hoping to hold ourselves accountable and, and to that history and trying to acknowledge it and and I think constantly failing, but that that there's actually kind of a like a beauty in that attempt at at um, reconciliation and reparation as you as you put it, Jess. Um, I feel like this could be the first ever day long episode of the podcast, and um, and I personally would be would be kind of into that, but um, I think um, I also want to just wrap up the show by saying that I think it would be. Um, you know, impossible. I mentioned Toni Morrison only only once during this episode, and yet I think her um, looming and beloved shadow um, is over this whole conversation, and also I think leading the way forward for so many writers. And her passing, her recent passing this week, the sort of in thinking about this episode, I was so influenced by looking at um, my social media feeds where so many writers of so many different backgrounds were lamenting her and, of course, Black American writers most powerfully, um, and that her writing in all genres has been um, such a path for thinking about relationships between individuals and their communities, and especially in the United States. Um, And I so appreciate both of you being part of this conversation, which was, I think, really important to me to have this week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And I will mention, we will encourage our readers to check out um, Jess and Tim's work. And I will also mention Toni Morrison's essay collection, Playing in the Dark, Whiteness in the Literary Imagination, which is in the same tradition as White Flights. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast, the second half of our special two-part episode on whiteness. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Our transcription editor is Damian Johansson. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Facebook at FNFPod, where we post links to our show notes, which will include some of the readings we talked about today. Please rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Happy reading, happy writing, and don't let the bastards grind you down.